You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Mike Mariani, the author of the new book, What Doesn't Kill Us, Makes Us. In the conversation, Mike discusses the concept of afterlives and the transformative experiences that shape our identities. He shares the stories of six individuals who have faced catastrophic events and examines how their lives were altered. His work delves into human nature, the power of narratives, and the importance of acceptance and adaptation. Mariani writes, We may tell ourselves stories in order to live, but sometimes we must also free ourselves from the stories we've heard too many times, the ones that confine and sequester us. All right, without any further delay, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Mike Mariani. All right, well, Mike, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Joshua. Well, I'm glad to have you, and I'm excited to chat about your book, What Doesn't Kill Us Makes Us. But before we get into the book, we we generally spend a few minutes and try to get to know you a little bit. How did you initially find your way to being a writer and a journalist, Mike? Yeah, so I, I think um, I always loved writing. Uh, it was something that I was, I was interested in beginning probably in my preteens and into my adolescence. Um, I would say that it was definitely one of my uh, greatest academic strengths, you know, in high school and going into college. Um, and so, yeah, in my late adolescence and early 20s, I always knew I wanted to be a writer in some capacity. Um, and, you know, after getting my master's, um, I just kind of gravitated toward journalism. Um, I, you know, particularly was, was really interested in narrative journalism and I was really drawn to kind of telling people's stories with a lot of space and flexibility, um, or texture and detail and atmosphere and kind of putting together scenes. So just a lot of the the kind of devices and mechanisms that go into narrative journalism, you know, I, I was really drawn to, and over time, you know, that evolved into, you know, me doing a lot of features and kind of bigger, longer uh, pieces, um, which obviously eventually culminated in uh, what doesn't kill us makes us. A standard question that comes up quite a bit in the beginning of some of these conversations is, how do you think about discerning your way in life? So we talked about uh, initially, maybe into writing and journalism, but how about today in the way of projects moving forward how do you think about navigating a particular fork in the road as you navigate life if you will sure sure um yeah i think that you know i've always kind of relied on you know having some discipline and sort of being able to incorporate a certain level of discipline into my decision making whether that's with my career or um you know, my lifestyle or, or, you know, major life decisions. Um, and so, yeah, and, and in terms of implementing discernment, um, I think it's just important to, you know, take a lot of time, take your time making those big decisions. 
don't be impulsive. I mean, impulsivity, I think sometimes can be kind of glorified or romanticized when we're younger. Um, but as you get older, I think that you need to invest more and more time in your decision making and, you know, be kind of meticulous and thorough and patient with it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's really no shortcut. I mean, there are certainly probably certain kind of rules or tenets that can be applied. But I think in general, um, when it comes to discernment and navigating those sort of major junctures um, or kind of forks, yeah, just that patience, that diligence, um, and that resistance to impulsivity can, you know, can be really key to to making a decision that you won't, you know, turn over your shoulder and think about, you know, too many times in subsequent years and over the course of your life. I was wondering, as a as a place to get started into the book, if you could talk a little bit about the framework uh, of the book for the listeners. Yeah, of course. Um, so there's definitely a lot that I could kind of take apart there, but you know, I, I knew I wanted to, you know, to write a book that was going to be taking advantage of my experience with narrative journalism. Um, and so, you know, the type of writing that I had really grown familiar with and, and kind of passionate about was these sort of these character studies, kind of these profiles that looked at people's lives or maybe a few years in their lives um, and maybe, you know, uh, illuminated or shed light on a certain issue, you know, through the lens of their narrative and their story. Um, and so, I, you know, I knew I wanted to incorporate multiple overarching, multiple narratives into a book. Um, and so there was that piece of it in terms of sort of my journalistic um kind of credentials and experience and, and, and that skill set that I was going to be applying to the book. And then the other piece is kind of just sort of the personal element, like, you know, this is a some of the ideas in the book, especially kind of um, the, the main sort of driving idea is something that has been, you know, in the back of my mind or in some cases in the front of my mind for a very long time. But I think in a way, the book is really like a nice kind of ideal marriage of those two things, you know, of my, my skills as a narrative journalist and of this um, kind of philosophical idea or concept that had been brewing um, with me um, that had been so psychologically impactful for me um, for a very long time. And, you know, I did at the time the best I could to, to bring, to fuse those two things together. Nice. Well, I, um, I obviously read a, a lot of books for the for the podcast and, and just for myself. And I have to say, this book is really beautifully written. I, I was really impressed with the with the writing of the book and and Thank kind you. of um, melding these six lives lives together. Um, could you talk a little bit about these six maybe profiles or stories, however you would say it, and and kind of some of the um, circumstances that they you know uh, dealt with yeah of course um so yeah there are six subjects in the book um valerie pirro sophie papp gina appleby jason dixon sean taylor and jr vigil um just to kind of do a brief sort of capsule summary of each of them so valerie uh and, and also 
you know, perhaps it goes without saying that these are all people that experience these sort of catastrophic, uh, life-altering events. Um, and the book obviously kind of investigates and examines how their lives and identities were changed in the wake of these before and after events. Um, and so for Valerie, um, she was uh, a high school student in New York City, um, and she was uh, a passenger um, in, the, in a van um, that had a, a major accident, um, which left her, her paralyzed. Um, and Sophie Papp uh, was um, somewhat of a comparable age, I think maybe a couple years older, maybe three years older. She was also in a car accident. Um, but the kind of the the consequences uh, were were substantially different. So she suffered a traumatic brain injury, um, and as I outlined in the book, uh, the kind of the the consequences and ramifications of that were really quite myriad, including um, significant changes and you know just a dramatic influence on her personality and the way that she interacted. Um, with individuals, with family members, um, and uh, on top of all the kind of more physiological uh, consequences of her accidents. Um, and then there's Gina Appleby. Um, she was somebody who um, had uh, visual impairments for most of her life. Um, and so you know, she already really what you know, was frankly dealt a really difficult hand and was kind of grappling with that for her entire adolescence and early adulthood. And soon after she graduated from college, she, you know, basically had to she experienced, you know, a pretty serious sexual assault and had to navigate the aftermath of that and how that kind of had this huge impact on her psyche um, and the PTSD symptoms she experienced. Um, and the way that she kind of um, grappled with that additional layer being put on her identity. Um, and that's kind of um, something that's discussed in one of the chapters. Um, in terms of uh, on the male side, there's, there's Jason Dixon, who is a little bit older. Um, when, we, when we meet him in the book, um, he basically suffered from an opioid addiction. Um, which, you know, I think was a useful opportunity to, to, you know, spend a little bit of time at least incorporating the opioid epidemic into the book, because that actually has been something that's fascinated me for a long time. Um, I have written uh, about it for various publications. So, you know, I found it, you know, really worthwhile to look into his story. Um, and he ended up, you know, basically committing armed robbery to support this, you know, vicious, implacable opioid addiction which resulted in him, um, you know, going to prison for a number of years. And then you have Sean Taylor, um, who was involved in what turned out to be a fatal shooting, um, also in his uh, late adolescence. Um, he ended up spending uh, about 20 years, about two decades in, in prison. Um, and the final um, subject is J.R. Vigil who was in uh, a very severe car accident uh, on Guam um, that basically you know, his body was so badly damaged and his legs were so badly injured that doctors had, surgeons had to, to amputate both of his legs. 
Um, and so, you know, there, one thing that does sometimes jump out about these six subjects is that there is a wound of overlap. Um, but in terms of the actual consequences of each of these catastrophic life events, I think they are very different in terms of um, the, the injuries, the disabilities, the psychological impacts. Um, you know, their stories uh, really, you know, diverge and are, you know, extremely unique in a number of a number of ways. Such a fascinating project and book, exploring so many different um, lives and, and situations, and and maybe it's worth um, talking about this Nietzsche quote that you that you write about in the in the beginning of the book um listeners may be familiar with it but this you know what doesn't kill us makes us stronger could you talk a little bit about that as i mentioned sort of at the beginning this was kind of one of the galvanizing ideas behind the book um you know nietzsche's line what doesn't kill us or what i mean technically what he what he wrote was what doesn't kill me makes me stronger um and i kind of uh outlined how that line sort of became this really powerful maxim in, in America and the American kind of cultural zeitgeist and online and, not, um, you know, people have tattoos. It's just something that like almost everybody has heard. Um, and it seems you know, reasonably apparent that a lot of people are to some degree emotionally invested in it. Um, and I certainly was, was invested in it for a long time, um, having kind of experienced a number of you know, serious adversities in my own life. Um, I really, you know, somewhat passionately subscribed to that idea, the idea that um, our adversities, our hardships, our obstacles over time, you know, can make us into stronger people. Um, but, you know, as I discussed in the introduction to the book, um, there were certain periods in my, uh, you know, late, Basically, as I got closer to starting the book, that really made me kind of take a more skeptical approach to that to that aphorism, um, and begin to kind of become interested in examining it and interrogating it. And you know, to some extent, the jumping off point for the book is understanding that well, if that's not true, then how can we? add more nuance to it? How can we complicate this idea or how can we refute it altogether? And what's going to replace it? You know, if we're not kind of one dimensionally, simplistically stronger after um, these sort of catastrophic adversities, then how else do we change? You know, what are kind of the, the patterns and the overarching truths about how people change um, after you know, these major negative life events. I, I love that. How can we, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we add uh, more nuance? How can we complicate it? Um, I, I love that. So often we're trying to do the, the opposite with things and try to simplify things. Right. Uh, I made a, a note of something you write in the book. Those leading afterlives must accept the inherent tensions and contradictions of their fates and internal lives that cannot be neatly categorized. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, this term afterlives? Yeah, of course. Um, 
So the idea of afterlives is it's kind of a category that I created for, for this book. Um, it, it basically it speaks to people who have had these um, catastrophic or major dramatic life-altering experiences that could be you know, a serious car accident, a serious period of incarceration, um, acquired disability, you know, whether that's paralysis, amputation, um, you know, acquired blindness, things like that. Um, certainly different types of, of, of uh, mental illness and then psychological uh, challenges. Um, I definitely interviewed people, you know, um, with PTSD. Um, basically anything that is creating this chasm or this gap from everything up until the experience and then everything after. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of people, especially over the, the course of the reporting process, it's kind of like, you know it if you've experienced it, you know, if you've had one of these type, one of these kind of um, just substantial, significant life altering events, you, you know what it feels like um, on a pretty deep level to look at your life in this bifurcated way in terms of a before and an after. Um, and so, you know, people who have had those experiences where they really can't return to the before part of their lives, they can't return to um, the status quo that, you know, we all frankly cling to, um, they're the ones that exist in, in these afterlives. And they're the ones that have to, yeah, kind of um, make sense of their identities in a, in a kind of a new territory and in a place where they really can't go back to the way things were. Um, because, you know, th that's what, mo what most of us want, I think, especially after serious adversity and tragedy, we just want to go back to the way things were. Um, and in some cases, I think that's possible. <laughs> um, but certainly not in all cases. And to me, what was, what I was really drawn to with the book and with, you know, kind of creating this category that I termed afterlives is again, just focusing on these people who really couldn't go back. Yeah, you you write in the book that we can't get back on the on the horse that we we rode in on, um, and obviously say, you know, not in all cases. I I was thinking a little bit about um, a quote from Nietzsche as I was reading through the book. You know, another another quote he, which uh, I don't remember it exactly, but to paraphrase it, it's something about um, knowing ourselves you know, we have so many skins, how can we ever, you know, be for sure that this is the, the, the real me. And, uh, I don't know. It made me curious about this fact of, um, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah. We, maybe we, we can't really say that. And obviously something we talk about quite a bit on the podcast that it's, you know, it's subjective in any way as we think about this idea of stronger and you know, it's more nuanced and complicated. But what about this idea of um, knowing ourselves? You know, you think of the Delphic maxim, know thyself. Um, you know, in your experience of talking to so many different people that have, you know, dealt with some of these traumatic events in life, um, you know, can we say that it's a, it's a path to 
greater self-awareness or, you know, a greater understanding of, of who we are? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very good question. Um, there's definitely a lot of layers there. Um, I think that I would probably answer it in a couple of ways. Um, the first is, you know, there's no question that these experiences, they, they do create or uncover different skins, so to speak. So, you know, they're changing these people's identities on, on a really deep level. Um, so, you know, maybe you are kind of uh, a more carefree teenager or 20 something, and suddenly you have this, um, you know, serious catastrophe or tragedy that is changing your outlook forever. Um, and it's kind of, you know, forcing, imposing on you certain obligations and responsibilities and burdens that you would have never imagined were going to be such defining elements of your life. Um, you know, with the case of someone like Sean or, or, or Valerie or Sophie, for that matter. Um, so I, I do think that it's changing people's identities in a really fundamental way. Um, but with that said, there is, you know, I, there is some truth to what you're saying in terms of, you know, is it forcing us to understand ourselves in a different way or on a deeper level? Um, so I think that one thing that I can certainly personally speak to and that I do discuss in the book and that I kind of was able to, uh, to see or, or um, discern from these subjects is when you go through these experiences, it's kind of limiting your freedom and it's, it's um, inhibiting certain aspects of your character or the aspects of your identity that you lean the most on leading up to these catastrophic life events. You may not be able to lean on them anymore. Um, and so what is what these experiences have in common in my opinion and you know in my reporting is that they force you to look into other parts of your identity um for things to um to cultivate to work on to develop to strengthen so that they can become kind of the pillars of the person that you will you know ideally ultimately transform into um and so in a lot of cases these experiences because they're inhibiting the parts of ourselves that were the most dominant or that we allowed to thrive to the greatest degree, um, we're forced to search elsewhere. We're forced to kind of branch out in terms of our identity um, to find the parts of ourselves that we still have kind of unfettered access to um, and that we can, you know, use and kind of and kind of ride and, and um, develop to the point where, you know, we have, we have more meaning, we have more purpose, we have, a, we've regained some semblance of a solid sense of self. I was wondering, you know, this, this project uh, of yours and exploring this topic so, so deeply, I'm curious, like, how, if at all, has it maybe changed the way you think about transformation in general to to get more specific there's a popular quote from um the pre-socratic philosopher heraclitus who you know talks about this uh, 
you know, constantly changing. The sun is new every day. So, um, you know, we only step in, in, um, everywhere once it's like the river is changing. We're changing each and every day. So he might say that these afterlives are like many, 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 you know, each and every day is an, is an afterlife. I'm curious, like any, any thoughts on that? And, uh, you know, just broadly speaking on, on transformation. Yeah. Um, so I, in terms of transformation, it, it, it definitely made me um, think about kind of the ways that we depict transformation in popular culture. Um, so it does seem like the idea of transformation is one that we're um, subtly or not so subtly really enamored of. Or, um, and so whether, you know, whether you're thinking about um, kind of like the glut of superhero films uh, Marvel, Harry Potter, a, a lot of um, comic book films and, and major franchises aimed at uh, preteens, adolescents, early 20-somethings, and increasingly, you know, um, adults, just straight up adults now, they, they do hinge to a significant degree on transformation. Um, I think that kind of what I write about in the book is that the main difference is that when we see transformation, especially on the screen, you know, in films and franchises, and I guess to a lesser extent, television shows, these are transformations that turn people into kind of transformations of empowerment that make people kind of more powerful, more capable, um, that give them sort of a unique set of gifts um, that kind of catapult them to a different sort of status in, in the world. Um, and, you know, to me, and, and after reporting on this book, my feeling is that, you know, transformation is extremely prominent and a major theme of, of the human condition and of human lives. But in some ways it's a transformation in a different direction and it's transformation in terms of maybe some of maybe we become less physically capable. Uh, maybe we're kind of negotiating greater limitations. Um, but our bodies and minds, you know, absolutely do undergo these transformations, you know, uh, one or in some cases multiple times during our lives. It's just that I think that, you know, in popular culture, the transform, the idea and the theme of transformation, while it is, like I said, so you know, omnipresent and so kind of resonant. It's it's glamorized. It's glamorized to the point where it's hard to even recognize the connection between the transformations we see um, in culture and the ones we experience in our everyday lives. But I do think there is something there because you know we continue to return to it over and over. Um, you know, as audiences, as creators, as writers, as journalists, as storytellers. Um, it is something that obsesses us. It's just that, again, um, there's kind of a, a romanticization or a glamorization process that it goes through once it hits uh, popular culture. The, um, the idea of acceptance, we don't necessarily, um, it doesn't get glamorized, you know, as much, but I'm assuming that that is um, such an important piece of, of some of these 
like you say, to to maybe um, touch on, you know, we can't get back on the horse that we rode in on. How do we accept, you know, this new horse that we are on, this new afterlife? What did you learn about self-acceptance and, and things like that? Or just um, maybe not necessarily self-acceptance, but also, you know, accepting of of life, you know, however it, it may have unfolded in, in these types of situations. I think that acceptance is a hard thing to accomplish sort of in a vacuum. Um, and so I think that a lot of these subjects, they were able to get closer to acceptance through adaptation. Um, and so, you know, something that is apparent, you know, throughout the book, but I kind of drilled deeper into in the, the final chapters of devotion and reinvention. A lot of these subjects do, you know, as they go through this kind of transformative process and learn about and kind of lean into other dimensions of their identity, they're essentially undergoing adaptation. Um, you know, in the case of, of Valerie, for example, you know, while at college, um, she becomes really interested in, in the Middle Ages and medieval history, um, and becomes you know this kind of fledgling medievalist, um, and that becomes really a core part of her identity as she moves through her twenties and into her early thirties. Is you know as this kind of budding academic who, um, you know, has this incredible ability to 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 conduct this research. And to kind of um, you know find facts and details and ideas and laws that sort of tweak our understanding of, of medieval history and these particular time periods. Um, but it's kind of just a, a long way of saying that I think that in a lot of cases we do need to undergo adaptation to get closer to acceptance. Um, we have to find new things about ourselves that you know, we can lean on, that we can cultivate, that we can become proud of. And that can really help us get a lot closer to acceptance. Um, because I think that the first, you know, my reporting certainly speaks to this. You're so far from acceptance when these things initially happen to you. Um, and in fact, you're, you're embracing denial. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you're telling yourself stories and subscribing to narratives that Maybe statistically impossible um, because you're so deeply resistant to the idea of accepting your new circumstances. Um, and the way, I, you know, from what I found, that you bridge that gap from this kind of zealous denial to gradual acceptance is through, you know, that adaptation process um, and kind of, you know, gradually evolving your identity. It's it's really interesting, like the. Uh acceptance and adaptation maybe as part of some sort of yin and yang you know work working together as we uh as we navigate through you you touched on um you know the stories we tell us which is a, a chapter in the book could you talk a little bit about you know the the power and and role of the stories we we tell ourselves yeah yeah for sure um, so yeah, that was kind of one of the, the interludes, uh, which are kind of just essays where I sort of discuss some of the ideas, um, 
that are kind of circling the the subjects and the narratives in the book. Um, and so, yeah, one thing I was really interested in is this idea of narrative psychology. Um, and in narrative psychology, you have basically these different ubiquitous narratives that people subscribe to. I think, you know, in terms of the academic literature that I looked at, there's maybe eight or nine of these, um, you know, consistently recurring narratives. A couple of them are, um, there's a redemption narrative um, where people, maybe they, you know, um, they committed some type of, you know, um, crime or transgression or active betrayal. They did something that, you know, dramatically altered their lives, whether through incarceration or maybe alienating themselves from other people. Um, and they have to go through this long, arduous, but ultimately rewarding process of redemption. Um, so that's one example of the um, these types of narratives that that people subscribe to. And the interesting thing about you know this narrative psychology is you know these aren't necessarily things that we talk about that that we discuss or that we we may not even convey or communicate them to people close to us. It's just things that we are kind of holding on to and preserving internally. Um, and so the redemption narrative is one. Um, another example would be the contamination narrative, which I mentioned briefly in that chapter, which is basically the idea that um, you know things were going so well until this happened. Um, this, you know, primarily being something that was completely outside of our control, um, and our kind of the people who subscribe to the contamination narrative, their whole sort of the way that they understand themselves and their biography hinges on this one events that kind of change their fortunes and their lives and their narratives permanently and maybe irreversibly. Um, and so, you know, you have the redemption narrative, the contamination narrative, there's the mastery narrative, um, and, and, you know, several more. And I guess part of the point that I was trying to make in stories we tell ourselves is not only how important these narratives are you know, to everybody, um, but in some cases, they may be especially important to people who have experienced these uh, before and after events, um, because you know, I, you know, as we've discussed, they're in such a kind of a sensitive, fragile state of reconstituting their identities that being able to cling to one of these narratives can be even more critical to them in terms of. Um, their sense of self, um, their sense of purpose, um, and just giving their lives a sense, a sense of cohesion. I mean, cohesion is so important, I think, to, to, to human beings and to how we see ourselves. And one of the great kind of challenges and difficulties of these before and after events is that it really ruptures that cohesion. Um, and these narratives and narrative psychology, I think, offers an opportunity to kind of recapture some of that cohesion because we can embrace this story that wraps itself around our, our whole lives and um, and kind of pulls everything together. I'm I'm curious for for anyone listening out there, you know, what advice might come to mind 
for, you know, someone that has a friend or family member, you know, any, you know, a loved one that has experienced something like some of these examples that you write about in the book, you know, like what role do, you know, friends and family, you know, play in um, helping through this, you know, these types of situations? I mean, they're, they're extremely important, you know, um, to be honest with you, it's not something I spent an enormous amount of time on in the book because I was so focused on kind of making these, uh, these sort of interwoven character studies. Um, but I think the people that had stronger support systems, whether it was parents, siblings, really close, uh, loyal friends, it made a huge difference. Um, I think that, you know, people, friends and family that can really understand and appreciate the magnitude of, of what people are, of what, you know, people kind of experiencing afterlives are going through can make an enormous difference in terms of, um, just having that understanding, having that compassion, having that patience, um, you know, just contributes to a person's quality of life and their um, ability, you know, to to get closer to acceptance too, I think is, is a big thing. Um, if you, you know, not to kind of sketch a negative scenario, but, you know, let's say maybe you have friends who don't understand what you're going through um, and who expect maybe you to, to just get over something, you know, significant or, or life altering that happened to you. You know, that type of feedback is going to make it much harder for you to, you know, reach that place of acceptance because people need an enormous amount of time. You know, they need time, not just quote unquote to heal, but they need time to, to grow and to adapt and to kind of make sense of what their new identities are going to look like. Um, and so, yeah, to have a support system that is really patient, patient, compassionate, understanding, um, you know, sort of knows that they don't know, you know, is sort of willing to acknowledge and, and sit in the reality that they really can't imagine, in some cases, at least, uh, what this person is going through. Um, yeah, I think that makes an enormous difference. And, and I'm just thinking about some of the subjects who did have um, either really supportive parents um, or siblings. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of the, the gratitude that that they fell towards those people was you know super palpable through my interviews with them if i remember correctly you talked a little bit about um some of the statistics around some of these things i think oftentimes when we think about you know some of these examples that you that you mentioned early on these you know accidents addictions you know assaults and and the list goes on but it's a uh, it's far more common than than we realize. Do you could you speak to the you know amount of people at least maybe here in the West? I think is what you touched on. Yeah. Um, so I don't have the exact statistics in front of me, but you know I will say that whether it's um, you know paralysis, amputation, I think that there 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 are some statistics in the introduction that do speak to this broader category of what, you know, what's called acquired disability, um, where someone has either um, a medical condition or an accident in most cases 
that do lead to sort of the quote unquote acquisition of these different disabilities. And that's a huge category that encompasses millions, you know, I think tens of millions of people. Um, and it's one that you know, we're not super familiar with in terms of the, the main, mainstream culture. We don't, you know, um, spend a lot of time covering and writing about and talking about, um, but it is a, you know, a huge category. And then of course, you know, um, the, the drug epidemic, the opioid epidemic, that's, you know, leading to and you know, contributing to uh, more acquired disability too. Um, and so, you know, uh, Although not all the subjects would necessarily fall under that category and fit into that criteria, it, it is um, yeah something that I wanted to shed a lot of light on because you know in some case, in some ways that's kind of the very the epitome of of an afterlife you know is someone who was able to you know navigate their lives completely uninhibited and then you know has this illness or accident or other type of completely unforeseeable event that leaves them with this, you know, acquired disability um, that drastically transform their lot, transforms their lives. And yeah, it's, it's tens of millions of people, you know, a, a significant percentage of the U.S. population. And I guess the final question I have um, towards the book, and then we'll, we'll transition for the rest to talk a, a little bit about uh, wisdom is, um, you know, how has this project shaped the way you see yourself and and those around you, Mike? So I, I think to answer this question, I can, I'll go back to, so I don't know if you've heard of this book, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Um, I haven't read it. I've, I've heard of it. Though. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, one of my favorite nonfiction books really to come out in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and you know it, it looks at these different uh, what what Solomon calls these horizontal lives. But the bottom line is that what it did for me, or the way that I try to describe it, is it kind of expanded or pushed out the borders of how I thought about or conceptualized the human condition. Um, and so it kind of you know it widened and broadened my imagination for what it means to be you know, a person, whether it's in the West or, you know, on the planet. Um, and so, you know, just the idea of kind of pushing and widening the kind of the boundaries or the parameters of what we think of when we think of other people's lives. Um, and that's something that, that I really uh, endeavor to accomplish to whatever, you know, s- small, minuscule degree with this book to just help readers kind of um, begin to develop a more inclusive, diversified conceptualization of what it means to be human. So we don't just think about kind of the more privileged um, versions uh, of people, whether, I guess, in this case, in the U.S. So we're also thinking about people that, yeah, have have acquired disability or have experienced, you know, one or multiple decades of incarceration um, or that are dealing with, you know, major trauma that's become a significant part of, of their kind of their psychological lives. Um, yeah, the, that was just, I think, you know, one of the major goals of this book. And that's something that I thought about, you know, the whole time while writing it. And I think it has left something of an imprint on me in terms of, 
you know, me always wanting to think about the human condition in these kind of broader, more inclusive and diversified terms. Well, beautiful. Um, and then uh, typically we spend the last 10 minutes or so and chat a little bit about uh, wisdom from a, a practical sense. So to kick us off, our, our standard wrap-up question is, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? I think that the the kind of the way that I would answer this is, um, I would say, kind of perseverance and work ethic on one hand, and detachment from results and competition on the other. Um, I think that kind of encapsulates uh, a lot of the wisdom that, that I sort of used to carry me through uh, every day. Being able to kind of persevere through adversity and through hardship and through even just everyday challenges is, it goes without saying, um, extremely important. Um, and that kind of perseverance can help people develop and cultivate um, and sculpt, uh, so to speak, a, a work ethic um, that they can then draw on throughout their lives. Um, but then I also want, I mean, or I personally try to balance that out with this idea of detachment or non-attachment to results and competition. Um, and that's, you know, there's a little bit of, of kind of Buddhist or Hindu philosophy kind of in there in terms of just the importance of not being attached to the results of your work. Um, and then, you know, also not being attached to, you know, comparing yourselves to, to peers or to other people. Um, because, you know, work ethic is, is obviously such a major longstanding tenet um, and idea in American culture. But I think that if you take that on, it's like sometimes it can run amok a little bit when you're when you become, you know, too, too infatuated with or attached to competition. So I think just that perseverance and work ethic on the one hand, but also the kind of the discipline to detach yourself from from competition um and and the results uh, of your of your actions and work i love it and if we could stay here for a few minutes um you know we're recording this around new year's so there you know you may have some new year's resolutions yourself or or listeners might how do you think about that in the the mundane you know, New Year's resolution type of thing, specifically the the detachment piece of the results and the competition, which is a bit more counterintuitive, especially for us here in the in the West. You know, how do you think about that, Mike, of like rubber meets the road in the mundane aspects of daily life? Yeah, I mean I think that it takes it takes practice. You know, I think that the there's all these little ways that we are competing, you know, and that we're attached to our goals, our actions, our accomplishments. Um, it's just such, it's just so kind of embedded in, in Western and American culture, you know, to have that attachment to results um, and to sort of be able to point to the, the fruits of our labor and of our, of our hard work. Um, but, you know, in a lot of cases, that can be useful, I think, and it can be advantageous for a lot of people or for certain periods in people's lives. But 
when it comes to afterlives or when it comes to um, having to kind of grapple with with altered circumstances, I think um, that in some cases that competition and attachment to the fruits of our actions can become toxic. Um, and so, yes, in terms of connecting it to the mundane, I, I think it just takes it takes a lot of time to kind of uh, to combat or to reverse or neutralize those patterns of thinking. Um, because for a lot of people, just to take competition, um, for example, it's just been bred into them. You know, it's it's kind of um, it's, it's how we measure ourselves. We measure ourselves against um, other people and against peers. Um, and I think you know the, that can reach a place of, of of toxicity. And so I think just reminding ourselves continually, you know, every day to you know be invested in our in our actions and our in our perseverance but to stop short of juxtaposing you know those actions with with uh the work and, and accomplishments of others well no I, I i love it i love the response and and again uh i'm super grateful for your for your time coming on sharing it with uh myself and the listeners uh again your book is what doesn't kill us makes us are there any you know other books or you know websites that you might point our listeners interested in learning more or connecting yeah i mean in terms of other books i i would definitely yeah kind of uh again mention uh far from the tree i think that's was, was a major point of inspiration for for my book um and i think you know this is you know, to my mind, just uh, an important sort of project in, in the world of nonfiction writing, just to try to continue to, like I said, to expand the borders of, of how all of us think of the human condition. Um, because you know, the more comfortable and familiar we are with these other, with these afterlives and these other varieties of, of human experience, the more comfortable we will be if and when you know we find ourselves kind of inheriting these these different identities um yeah so that would be the other book that i would strongly recommend that is you know somewhat along similar lines nice well beautiful mike mariani thank you again for coming on in search of wisdom thanks so much joshua it was, it was a real pleasure thanks a lot for having me thank you for listening i hope you found something useful if so i encourage you to put what you heard into practice if you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.